Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. Today on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about our economic crisis and collapse. How exciting. (laughs) I'm here with my friend Jimmy, who's been working as a missionary who works in Venezuela, has been working there for many years. And uh, on today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about Venezuela, including also about the project uh, that the radical personal finance community was was uh, instrumental in helping to get started, uh, but we're mainly going to focus on the economics of what's happening in Venezuela. I think it's one of the most instructive uh, scenarios because a lot of people worry about well, what ha- what does a total economic crisis look like? What does a collapse look like? Well. In today's world, the place to go if you're interested in seeing what those kinds of things look like is uh, is Venezuela. Uh, so, Jimmy, welcome back to Radical Personal Finance. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> so, I would like you to describe, uh, you have been going to Venezuela for 20 years yeah. more? Uh, no, 30, 30, 30 years. 30 years. So, I'd like to begin, describe what you have observed with your first-hand experience in Venezuela over the last 30 years. Lay out what has happened over that 30-year timeline up until today, economically speaking. Well, uh, the first times when I was in Venezuela, it was um, I remember it was a very prosperous um, city, very expensive, I remember. We were paying a huge amount of rent for a very small apartment, my wife and I. Um, their system, they had a very, the first, I believe, um, working subway, uh, very modern. So it was a very modern city, and with all those. Are you talking about Caracas? Yeah, Caracas. I'm sorry, Caracas, and uh, and the countryside uh, the same. Uh, so there was a lot of progress. Um, you could tell that people were were really enjoying a lot of prosperity at that time. So that was 30 years ago. Then trace it through, because you've been back plenty of times throughout those decades. So what what have you observed firsthand, or what have you watched happen? Um, as you've stayed in touch with the country over the years? Yeah, it was probably the, the most radical changes that I saw was probably within the last 10 years. I saw a rapid, very rapid decline on, on, on everything to the point that, uh, that it, it, it was brought to the, the, the point in which pretty well everything has, has collapsed now in a, in a, in a, in a country that uh, anything, anything that has to do with services and uh, transportation, for example, uh, uh, education, um, even even the judicial system is uh, it's pretty well out. Everything collapsed now. But what what do, what does collapse look like? Are people dying in the streets? Are people just a little bit hungry? Um, are they just having a slightly lower standard of living? What does collapse actually look like on a day to day basis? Yeah, the first thing that you notice is the fact that a lot of people have relatives that have left the country. Uh, five point uh, six million. I'm sorry, six million of Venezuelans have left. So, first thing that you notice is that uh, in every family they have one, two, three, whatever members missing, because they are either they are living in, either in Europe, or South America, wherever they could go. Um, so there's a lot of um, of family disruption with that. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that I that is noticeable is the amount of business uh, that uh, that you see that are now not no, not just not functioning. Like sometimes you feel like even driving to big cities feels like a holiday because uh, pretty well if, I will say uh, between 
six to, to five to six business will be open, not not working, and the other one you could you could see that they're not. They barely making it in their in the daily business activities. Okay. Now, um, one of the things that I find so interesting, uh, you've done relief work for decades all around the world in disaster zones. Um, but I was interested in your opinion on uh, what novel novelists have come up with. And one of the things that I've done is I've never no, not, I've not spent nearly as much time in actual disaster zones as you have. Uh, but I've read a lot and I've thought a lot. And so one of the the prepping books, the prepping novels that I've always enjoyed was James Wesley Rawls' book uh, Patriots. And it's my understanding that before I gave you a copy of Patriots, you'd never you'd never read any prepping novels. Is that right? That is correct. That okay. was my first novel. <laughs> so they call uh, in the, you know, it's obviously kind of an ugly word, but they call it prepper porn. You know, novels that are written about collapses and and uh, and uh, you know things fall crises, things falling apart. So I gave you a copy of James Wesley Rawls' novel Patriots, and I said, here, read this and let me know what you think. So what did you think about that book uh, when I gave it to you? Well, I'm not. Uh... I have never been in uh, in touch or in contact with anybody that that is uh, that is is a really a prepper. Uh, all the all the all the things that I do in that department have to do with uh, my own research, personal research, and my own experience. I've seen I've, I've seen plenty of uh, countries that have collapsed. So once you see see them, uh, for example, Haiti. I was in Haiti and uh, and. Uh, I I have experienced firsthand uh, situations in which you definitely need to uh, to to I think not to be prepared um, is is uh, I came to the conclusion that not to be pr- prepared for an emergency is uh, the most absurd thing a person could do uh, mainly because uh, emer- emergencies could happen in into any country like I remember I was in Chile um, that after it was struck by a large earthquake. And uh, I was uh, I was assigned to a very very wealthy neighborhood, and I clearly vividly remember that, that, that within a, within two or three days, although they didn't suffer any damages in their homes because they were so well built, but within within two three days they had empty the all their all the food food supplies in the supermarket. So. They had no food. They, they were people that had the resources to buy food, but they didn't have any. And so it was, it was kind of interesting for me to learn that lesson that it doesn't matter if, sometimes it doesn't even matter if you have or do have the, the funding for, for buying supplies. Like, say you had a lot of money to do it, but if there is no supplies, you're, you're, the money becomes worthless. Human psychology doesn't change just because you have more money in your bank account. When people get into that panic mode, and they look around and they see that everything is disappearing and they start to worry that everyone else is going to get stuff before I do. They tend to react uh, react accordingly and, and start buying as much as they can. So um, when you compare your experience in Venezuela to what you read in a novel, um, how, did it, how does it compare? Uh, was what you see in Venezuela, uh, you know, just, you know, is what you read in the novel way worse than what you see in Venezuela? Is what you read, does it look like what you read in a novel? Is it worse in real life than it is in the novel? What do you think, after you read one novel, uh, how did that compare to what you actually see on the ground in Venezuela right now? 
Well, the first thing that drew my attention about that novel was the the, introdu- the, the beginning, when when they suddenly had an economic collapse, and uh, and people were not prepared for for, for that. And in some cases, I remember, if I remember well, money became pretty well uh, useless or, or worthless, um, and so that that is probably the, what struck me the most uh, when you see like. The institutions no longer providing the service. For example, there's no banking banking in, in Venezuela, or it's very limited, extremely limited banking. And uh, so, but you know, most of us adults have never lived in a, under a situation in which we don't we cannot count with a bank. And so we are so used to, to the bank that, but not having one there is kind of get, it, it takes time to get to get used to. That was one of the, the things that uh, probably made me think in the, in the novel, the, the economic aspect of you no, know, uh, what would you use to trade if uh, money or banking was not longer available. Yeah, you, t- you told me that uh, you had a co-worker who wasn't quite accustomed to doing work in Venezuela and he's coming in and everyone's talking about you know different projects they're going to do and and um, and you're telling him, well, how are you going to do that? <laughs> you don't, you can't have a bank account. You can't do, you told me that accounting doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, just describe what a hard transition it is for people uh, to, to learn how to do business in, a con, in, an, in an actual collapsed economy. Yeah, that's actually a problem we have now, right now because uh, we do get some funding for which we have to account for. And then, but how do you account for funding when, for example, the money that you used uh, is, um, is is pretty well uh, useless, and of course we're using uh, Colombian money now in Venezuela because it's the most accepted form of currency that they have. Now they're starting to use dollars as well, but uh, but it's it's quite a challenge because uh, because we we do have to be accountable to dollars, and at the same time it, with. We have to report from a from a collapsed economy, and so we we're working on that. It's it's not an easy thing to do, and uh, and uh, we need to to come to c- c- do some negotiations with even with a or just explanation to donors in, in Canada and the U.S. that uh, that we indeed working with a with a system that uh, that uh, is not is not functional. So what I find so interesting, though, is it's not even though the money is basically worthless, it's still being used, right? Um, it's not like uh, it's not like uh, you know you you you're still using the Venezuelan Bolivar, even though you have to carry around a backpack full of it. And yes, other other forms of currency are being used. The Colombian peso is being used. Uh, U.S. dollars, you know, have limited convertibility, but certainly still have have value. But people are still using it. Do you see any evidence of any kind of barter economy? Has that happened, or do people just go to other currencies? No, no, there's a lot of that. Um, I noticed that there is uh, not only that uh, trade, like uh, if you have something in your house that you need, it, you trade it with something else. That also, you know, when, when you think in a collapsed economy and, and burn is something that was new for me, was the fact that, uh, that, that there are things 
tools, for example, uh, uh, things that you could use as, as currency, um, tools, anything that you could pretty, you know, um, have that you could store it in a, in a, in a place um, that eventually could potentially be could used for, for trading either food or supplies or medicines. So it's something that new that I've seen that I never Did even... I uh, yeah. okay. that I never even consider um, I hope this I'm responding to your question yeah. uh, trading tra I see trade and I see what you said about bar, uh, providing services for for food like for example I have had workers that come and uh, to my to my project and they'll say well we'll work for you for and we don't want to get paid we just want a meal or two uh, so that that's how overwhelming the need could be what about precious metals does anybody do anything with precious metals yeah well uh, Venezuela is big on gold uh, and they, pr they they produce gold and, uh, and silver and uranium so I understand that it's a huge um, um, under underground market on that we don't we, we, we don't really deal with those things but but my understanding that there is a lot a lot going with that but we we're on a humanitarian business not in the gold business <laughs> <laughs> but when you say a huge market are you talking about government players or people who are connected in the government who are still doing business there or are you talking about individuals is there is there anybody that's going around with silver coins or gold coins um, and and using that to make purchases instead of of bolivares or, or pesos I really um, try to if I see it I probably close my eyes and, and not respond to the, to the question so ask you something else huh? is that what you're saying okay <laughs> all right so back to Patriots what else that you read in the novel was like what you see in Venezuela what else kind of had that ring of oh wow I've seen I'm seeing this every day um, what else um, I see people becoming very territorial there are areas that are controlled by certain groups, and you have to to sometimes ad advise them or ask for permission to the to the people in charge to go in. Uh, I had a case like we were asked to go to a Indian reservation, and but we had to get all kinds of permits from the army and from the local militia. We got the permissions, but but um, I I I find that uh, the more the more security issues Venezuela has, the more people become more territorial in some in some places, especially in the big cities. Um, what else I have seen? Um, I've seen uh, uh, the crime. The crime is is, is big. Uh, lots of um, uh, people um, uh, robbing robbing from the homes and not in not so much in the area where I work because uh, it works it's, it is under different rules and regulations uh, and I cannot really talk about it uh, but in, once you move into big cities uh, it's, it's totally it's totally different what else well I on the book we're going back to the book uh, um, I think uh, what I like about that book was the fact that this guy, in the, well, it's in a novel, of course, was able to put people that were very sympathetic to each other. Yeah, uh, there's, there, there's not a uh, there's not a more perfect 
person, a perfect protagonist who had all the resources and all the ability to build the world's greatest retreat. That, that, that's what that novel certainly profiles very effectively. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. it makes everyone a little jealous. <laughs> yeah, I don't think in reality you, you, could, you, could, you, you will be able to see such a perfect setting. I think it's a, it's a novel that is like, it's a, it's, a, it's a dreamland. It will never happen. Right. Uh, however, uh, I, I am thinking seriously about, about um, developing my own network of people that would uh, think alike me. And, and we could right now uh, share uh, knowledge, uh, research, even my own experience doing my own prepping. As I said, I, ne I, was, never, I was never a prepper, <laughs> although <laughs> meaning that I, I didn't know I, I, I was, I didn't even really knew I was a, uh, I was so, so much advanced into it until I started meeting other, other people that had taken that very seriously. Right. And now I, 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 I wish I knew that before because there is so much resources available. Right. And uh, I knew it, but I did not really pursue it, exploring what preppers had to, to offer me. Right. But now, for example, I've been in contact with people that have knowledge on solar energy, uh, people that, that is quite knowledgeable in water, sanitation, and survival skills. So I think um, um, <laughs> I, I've grown in that area, something that I sort of was my secret life. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I think about with Venezuela, what, what your comments earlier about about earlier about Caracas and Venezuela 30 years ago, it's my understanding that Venezuela, if you were to go back 20 to 30 years ago, was the... Um, you know, was in many ways the darling of South America, if not the most prosperous economy, one of the most prosperous economies, very modern, very advanced, um, very well developed. Uh, I remember in 2005, I studied in Costa Rica. And while I was there, I had professors that at that time were using Venezuela. They would use Venezuela as basically the crowning achievement of the kind of the kind of development that the world would like. My professors were very left wing, and they they loved um, at that time Chavez, uh, and they loved you know the development, and they talked glowingly about about Venezuela politically, economically, etc. Uh, Venezuela had massive levels of oil reserves, and and just you know you could everyone driving big big vehicles and big engines and everything because the oil was so cheap and and so um, widely available. Well, now fast forward anywhere from just call it 15 years and you have a genuinely collapsed society so let's pretend that you were living in venezuela and going back um 15 years because because you know a lot of people i wonder i wonder about those political developments i look and i say what what was it now latin america is very different than the united states but i think okay what if you know what if two years from now i'm talking about Senator Sanders, and what if all of a sudden Senator Sanders is is uh, or sorry, I'm talking about President Sanders, alluding to the U.S. politician Bernie Sanders, who's probably the most, certainly the most left-wing um, politician to achieve prominence in the United States uh, that I'm aware of ever, if not you know for a very long time. And so let's say that we have a, a President Bernie Sanders. Now I don't think it really happened in the United States because um, there's enough power and enough cultural check on on uh, executive power that I think that 
the risk is much lower. But I think, okay, what 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 if I what if the United States is going down the path of a Venezuela, moving very left, and they're going to have this economic thing, and their debt is so huge, and all of a sudden we're going to be in a situation of hyperinflation. So that's the context for the question. Now let's go back and pretend it was 15 years ago, and you're living in a country like Venezuela. What would you do to prepare 15 years prior? for a, an economic collapse a decade out? What would, what would you actually do? What, what kind of steps would you take? Um, say I was living in Venezuela 15 years ago. Yeah, I, and you knew you were living in Venezuela 15 years ago and you knew that economic collapse was very likely in the future. What would you be doing? Okay, I would... Um, if I was living in a house, um, I would make, make sure the house is, has... Um, has enough backup uh, for like a, an emergency system for electricity, water, and uh, um, I would definitely increase the safety of, of my of my house. Uh, that's as far as the place where I would be living. Um, uh, then I would buy. Um, um, uh, I would do a lot of research on on buying a car that would be easy to easy to repair. Not to, to even I would, for example, look into a car that doesn't is, is not run by a computer. Um, and very mechanical, mechanical. So and like then, an older car with a carburetor yeah. that, that you can work on with simple tools. Yeah, that's, cor- that's correct. I would uh, also uh, get a very well uh, set up shop in which I could self, self do a lot of self work uh, as far as electricity, plumbing, um, welding, um, welding me- mechanic problems. So I'm, so I don't have to depend on on the expertise of somebody else in a small or jobs, or else I could just hire somebody and bring it home and and provide the tools because I I find it that is the best way to hire help in, in Venezuela then personally I definitely would uh, get some money and uh, uh, put, put 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 some funding uh, careful careful, careful. Uh, put some funding outside the country if I if I could afford it at that time um, I would uh, uh, and uh, 15 years ago, I'm still thinking. Um, oh, I will try to get my um, a residency, or if I have the facility of. In my case, I was born in a third country, or the other than the country where I have my citizenship right now. So I would get my citizenship papers from a, from a second or third country if I have the opportunity. So having two or three passports, I think would 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 be appropriate than thinking 15 years ago. The other thing I would do is if I had also the, the, the funding, um, I would buy uh, property outside the country, um, like backup property. You mean uh, outside of Venezuela outside, or out outside, in the Venezuelan no, countryside? No, outside, both, both. Outside okay. in the countryside and outside in the... Remember, we're talking that I'm, I'm playing on the scenario that 15 years ago, I did have enough funding, right. spare funding to, right. to do right. those things. So. Right. Uh, the last thing I would do is, um, I would, uh, for example, if I knew I had some some medical issues that I'm neglecting to look into, like hernia surgery and 
and dental work and things like that, I would run and get it done. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, um, there will probably be more things. It's a, this is a question that I think I'm just running, raining ideas right now on yeah. top of my head. I'm sure there will be more that, that I would, could come up with. The list will be big. <laughs> would you save food? Yeah, I don't think... I think food will be... Yes, but not a top priority because, because uh, um, I would definitely do it. But, but enough. I know that it's been such a slow collapse that food for that for the collapse of country it didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of ten, fifteen years. Okay. What else? What else would you do? Uh, then I oh I would I would always have my all my paperwork in order uh, as far as uh, unavailable uh, ready to for somebody to take over in case I'm not in the country anymore. So what uh, you mean is like your documents your you would have a power of attorney so that if you had to flee from Venezuela to say Brazil or Colombia that that you would have the paperwork in order that somebody could manage your affairs. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, I would do that, but um, I'm just thinking it. I'm, I'm thinking that because I'm thinking to do that right now uh, from the place I'm living. So I'm, I'm just doing doing some reflection uh, as far as how to do it. Before, as you know, my my wife passed away recently, so I I no longer have that backup. So right. Right. I need to rethink all on on all that. And my kids are pretty well gone. Uh, outside, living outside the country, well established. So I'm pretty well on my own. Right. What if you? So we did that scenario, pretending that you had plenty of money. What if you were trying to go work through that scenario again, but you didn't have a lot of money? Let's just say you had maybe five thousand dollars saved, uh, so you couldn't go and and buy another citizenship. You couldn't go and. Uh, uh, you couldn't go and buy, you know, property outside of the country because you don't have enough money. You have a few thousand dollars. What would you do with a few thousand dollars to prepare for an economic collapse? Okay, five thousand dollars. Say, okay. The first thing is change my car uh, for a more manual car. So a simpler car, fewer computers. Yeah. Is fuel efficiency important? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Like right now, for example, I just bought myself a. The best car I could ever dream of in Venezuela, and I'm fixing it um, in response to this. I bought a Volkswagen, a 1972 Volkswagen, and I, I'm like, I'm putting a new engine and putting everything brand new. Now. A Volkswagen Bug, like a yeah, Beetle. Yeah, Beetle. Right. And uh, basically, I'm I'm buying it because of the the gas efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, I could go for miles and miles with that little, you know, four-cylinder 1,600cc right. engine, and while in the while if I use a different car, uh, pr- the first issue is there's no gas. You only get like if you're lucky, you get um, you get um, uh, up to thirty liters every three days of gas. Right. And if you and that's if you, if you stand in line for okay. hours and hours. Oh yeah, you have to pretty well sleep overnight there for uh, sometimes even two nights mm-hmm. to get so you're entitled to thirty liters of gas. So it's uh, right. Uh, some people even it's free gas so some people do it as a business they just sleep there for two all week and then somebody and then a person like me that doesn't have the time to do to do it will come and buy them from them 
at a exorbitant price, though, right? Because <laughs> they don't. They say it's a supply and it's a it's a it's, it's an item in very short supply. Okay, so you would get a an older car that was simpler, didn't run with a lot of computers, and that was fuel efficient. What else would you do? Five thousand dollars. I'm sticking to my. I had to stick to yeah, my budget. Yeah. Eh? <laughs> well, 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 let, we'll keep your five thousand. Let's assume that you sold your more modern car to buy the older, simpler one. So you still have some. Five, you still have five thousand dollars left. You just traded your car out. Okay, I definitely would would um, uh, improve. I spent a couple of thousand dollars in making improvements, and as far as the efficiency of the electricity um, and water um, of my house, um, I. Uh, and obviously more more security, uh, more more fences or whatever that that needs. Okay. That that is if I could do the, my work. And lastly, I'll definitely buy tools. I'll be prepared with every tool, simple tool that even if I don't know how to use it, I know that I have somebody else that will have the expertise to use it. So, and, and that, and that I have done it now. Like for example, if you if you if you come and see my shop, it's it's, it's pretty well prepared for. For every possible scenario somebody that is handy could face even though I'm not really a handy person because I don't have the time but I'm prepared for for everything pretty well much pretty well right the idea is if you have the tools the first thing is you have what you need to do improvements on your own home repairs on your vehicle things like that and what's happening in Venezuela is the parts are not fairly available you're finding um, and so if you have the tools then you can you can make things work the second benefit of the tools is if you have the tools then you can often use that to provide a means of living for yourself <coughs> so whether you're paid in in money or whether you're paid in some kind of barter transaction if you have the tools you can still support yourself um, and and make a living even in a collapsed economy and then the third thing is if you have the tools then even if you don't have the knowledge but you have the tools and perhaps some raw materials then you can hire somebody who does have the knowledge to come and work on work on things for you and to help you improve your own situation is that is that good is that accurate yeah i'm going to add something that i just finished thinking of and i'm it's a good question because you know something that i'm building right now right away and one of the things I would do with a, such a small budget would, would be to stock up myself with tools for agricultural work, like shovels, um, um, you know, uh, uh, chainsaw, uh, anything that would would uh, make agricultural uh, facilitate agricultural work. Say, for example, 15 years I have no longer the facility to work, then I, I'll move into a farm. And I asked the person in charge of the farm that I would exchange my 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 resources, which are tools and and maybe um, some kind of knowledge that I have in agriculture, for for land because I don't have the land. So we will go 50-50. We'll both would probably likely benefit from that. Plus, I would also. Um, move into a farm and start my own, you know, uh, self-grow food program uh, with uh, goats and, and whatever, whatever I could do um, to help me out with that or, or help out my family, uh, rabbits, fish, whatever. Um, so I'm still with my $5,000. Right, right. <laughs> okay, let me ask you another thing. In the in the prepper world, kind of the survivalist world, where they got names for everything, everyone talks a lot about bugging out. 
Uh, and there are different ways that this word is used, but I use it in two senses. The first sense is, you know, people, people do something like they create a bug out bag, which is a bag that's a backpack that they try to be prepared with things that they might need in advance. So uh, maybe a tent or some food or, or an extra, some tools, some things like that. So that if they had to leave their house and, and go walking away, uh, then they could do that and they could survive in comfort on the road. Um, and then also there's another sense in which people might use it in a bigger sense, such as internationally. Uh, you mentioned having another passport. Uh, and some land in another country. I, I still believe that one of the best ways to uh, survive and thrive during the current Venezuelan crisis is, if you're interested, is it, um, obviously it involves your leaving your community, but it's just simply to not be in Venezuela. You know, those who left when they saw that things were getting bad, uh, who uh, who went to another country and went to live in Colombia or Brazil or, or really anywhere in the world that's not Venezuela are not suffering as much as those who are still there. So. Um, do you see people, like in the middle of a crisis, do you see people going out and walking, uh, you know, with the things that they can carry on their back? Is that something that, that is at all relevant in a Venezuelan crisis? Oh, yeah, yeah. We just, uh, there's, uh, they escape by foot with all the, only their belongings. And we're not talking 10, 20, 1,000, 20 families. I've seen, I have counted a thousands crossing the, the Colombian mountains in one single day, carrying all what they own and I have uh, we have taken food supplies to them and it's kind of sad to see that uh, that people are just escaping the country with um, what they have in their hands is uh, is uh, it's all it's all what they own right. and, and, and thousands of them so it was a, I mean obviously it was a leading question I knew the answer to the, to it but the, the, I just want to emphasize this point that you actually do see thousands and thousands of people who are fleeing their homes on foot because the crisis is so bad. So they are fleeing, you know, they're fleeing their homes. And we're talking about families with children. We're talking about, um, hold on a second. Okay. Driving and podcasting uh, sometimes go well together, sometimes they don't. So we're talking about families with children uh, multiple children, and they're hiking hiking with their backs. Oftentimes also just fathers going to look for work. Um, but literally people walking out of the country every single day, thousands of people trying to get out. So I've always, you know, think of, I, I've often thought about, oh, bugging out on foot. Like, okay, it's a little far-fetched. But it really does happen. It really is happening in today's world is the point. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's kind of sad to see it happening right now as, as we speak. Right. And, uh, and Definitely about the the, the, the bug, whatever bug you call it. Bug out bag. I I took it. I just want to comment this. I took a training, a three-day survival course with the German army, and boy oh boy, if they ever put an emphasis on that bag and what should be into, so much, so long that right now, as I talk to you, I'm walking with that with my with my bag and thinking, you know, do I have everything that I need? As you know, I'm I'm about to catch a plane right. and, and and go to one to another mission. All right. We're at the airport, and so um, we've got about one minute. Any final words of advice that you would uh, that you would give to my listeners, based upon your experience there in Venezuela? Oh, take that whatever preparing thing you do very seriously. Um, I've seen it; it's worth it. Um, don't uh, don't let other people discourage you. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it's something that will eventually pay off. I'm certain, and not because I'm afraid of what could come in the future. 
is because I've seen, <laughs> right. I lived through it, so I know, I know, I know what prepper being a prepper means, and uh, and it's not something that should not be taken you know light lightly. Okay. <laughs> All right, Jimmy, thank you very much. Okay, Have a good nice time. Thank you very much. Yep, we'll see you. Send me the link on you, so I'll send it to my people. Yep, I will. Friends. All right, dropped him off. And uh, so I'll just wrap up uh, this podcast here with you and just simply tell you a few things. It's always a little bit challenging for me to get um, people to, uh, to tell all the stories on a podcast that they will tell me <laughs> when I don't have a recorder on. It's a continual challenge and especially a challenge for Jimmy who's uh, working in Venezuela. And of course he wants to be very, very polite and very cautious about everything he says uh, just because he faces significant danger uh, with the work that he's doing there. Um, but, uh, you've heard, I think enough from him to inform you've, you've heard enough from, uh, just a moment. You've heard enough from him to get some idea of what the actual circumstances are like. Now, having been a student of this stuff for a long time, I'll emphasize a couple of things. And these are informed, these, these ideas are informed by personal conversations with people who are living in Venezuela and who are, who are going through it. In one, in, in one way, the actual on the ground experience there is worse than what you think about. It's worse than what you read in a novel. Um, just a moment. And that is really sobering. Uh, when I first gave Jimmy a copy of Patriots and I said, here, read this, his, he came back to me a couple of days later and he said, everything in that book is what I see every day in Venezuela. Everything in that book is just like what I'm, I'm living, what I'm experiencing and what I'm seeing. And that really sobered me. Now, over the years, years ago, I first read Patriots uh, and my thought was, well, I enjoyed the novel. I enjoy, it's, it's uh, a lot of people don't like the style of writing where it's extremely detailed, but that's my, I enjoy that style of writing. I'm a detail oriented person and I enjoy, I enjoy it when authors go through and give all those, those details on how to do stuff. Basically that novel is a prepper manual wrapped up with a little bit of a storyline. Uh, and so I really enjoyed that, but, um, I've always thought eh, far-fetched, right? Far-fetched, uh, and certainly there are certain things about the plot. I won't, I won't go into the plot details, but certain things about the plot details specifically are far-fetched. The protagonists are, they're not uh, real human beings. They're idealized human beings, which I actually, most people hate that. They want their protagonists to be real. I don't mind a superhero protagonist. Uh, And so I like it, even though those things, and those things are far-fetched, but I've always thought the disaster scenarios were far-fetched. I've always thought, well, I could see how it could get bad, but nah, not like that. And so when Jimmy reads it and says, yeah, everything in here is exactly like what I am experiencing and seeing in Venezuela, that is really, I found that really sobering. I still, I find that really sobering. And, um, this was after I had come to a similar conclusion. Uh, I had, Venezuela has changed me personally because, um, I used to say, oh, I could see how these things could happen a little bit, but they're not that likely. But when I have actually seen it up close and personal, it's changed me and my own, my own thoughts on, on how serious. And it's caused me to take things that previously I thought, well, okay, that's nice to have, but that's pretty far-fetched. It caused me, it caused me to be much more serious. And then when Jimmy comes and says, 
uh, everything in this novel, which is an extreme novel, is what I'm seeing on the ground every day, that's uh, that's really sobering. Very, very sobering for me. And so, in some ways, real life on the ground is far worse than, than what you would expect. But in other ways, it's actually not. And, and so, you would think that, oh, just a collapsed world is the end of the world as we know it, and nobody would ever want to be there. But yet, Jimmy is day and night going into Venezuela and living in Venezuela. And in some ways, although the shortages and, and whatnot are acute, in some ways, life can look somewhat normal. It's a different kind of normal. You have to understand, well, who's in charge of the road at a certain time and which is the militia or the government or the military or the police, like who's in charge of it right now? And you have to think about what your relationships with those people are in terms of where you can safely go and what you can safely do. And, you know, there are a lot of things that are that are different. You sleep with your lights on so that the house doesn't look deserted, so that there's more of a, an ability to defend from thieves. And But yet, life goes on. You know, babies are born, people die, uh, life goes on. And so it's such an astounding contrast to me where it's not, it's not all one thing or all the other. It's not all a nightmare and all a disaster or all good. It's just, it's life and it's different and it's all mixed up. Um, but it's, it's life. And so I find it very sobering. Uh, and the thing that I often wonder about is I feel like a fear monger when I talk about Venezuela. And that's always been a, a, a major concern of mine, a fear of mine. I don't like to be the kind of person that looks foolish. I don't like to be the kind of person that has an extreme opinion and then says that. I, I've never really been drawn to people who are just spout off extreme opinions all the time. And so I don't like to be a fear monger. I don't want to be known as a fear monger. But when I look at Venezuela, it's chilling to me because of the, the, the pathway and the fact that went from great wealth and then instituted all these policies, and now it's it's crazy. Um, Jimmy gave me a gift, um, uh, properly gave my wife a gift the last time he came out of Venezuela, and he uh, he gave uh, her a purse that is literally woven out of money. Uh, I should take a picture and, and publish and publicize it and, and put it online just so you can see it. But it's very elegantly done. Uh, and it's very thick. It's, it's, it's a normal sized purse where the entire thing is made from banknotes. Uh, the body of the purse, the flap of the purse, the straps, the entire thing is woven with these banknotes that have been folded together and, and basically knit together to make uh, a chain that you can use this as a purse. And I thought when I saw it and I started looking at it, I thought, well, I'm going to have to, there's a statement that I can never make again in the future. There's people who are prone to saying, well, paper money, there's no intrinsic value about paper money. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to, the, you know, gold has an intrinsic value or something like that is, is better than paper money. I'm going to have to modify that statement because I never would have thought of weaving a purse out of money. Uh, but that's, that's what I have um, sitting in my office right at the moment, a, a purse that's woven out of money. And in some ways, it's actually a good thing because money is generally not made out of pure paper. It's a cotton paper. It's a fabric plant, and it's stronger than just pure paper. So uh, I guess if, you're, if your money supply becomes worthless, what you can do is go ahead and weave a purse out of it. And here's somebody making a living by, by taking money and then turning it into something more useful than money. Uh, but that's chilling to me because although I, I believe very emphatically and I think there are very good arguments to say that a country like the United States uh, is very different than Venezuela. The problem is that if you go down a certain path for a certain length of time, if you go down 10 years of, of, of 
higher socialism. And then if you have some kind of extenuating circumstance, like uh, a fallout of a market in Venezuela, the, the, the collapse of the oil prices and the oil market just devastated them. And there are some of these situations that exacerbate the problems. Like if those things happen, I don't see how any country is immune. And so you're always doing kind of a, basically a calculation to say, how far are we away from that? Uh, I don't think that that kind of collapse is, is probable in any way in the United States at the, current, at the current time. But ask me in 10 years, I'm not so sure. You know, ask me in 20 years, I'm not so sure. I don't think it'll be in that situation, but I'm not so sure. And I'm not as confident as I once was in those kinds of, of, of kind of sure predictions. So... When I, when I look at it, and, and since I've started talking about Venezuela here on the show, I've been so fascinated. I've gotten lots of stories from listeners who've told me stories about their family members, their family members in a difficult time, um, and also their family members that escaped. Uh, for example, one listener told me about his father-in-law who, uh, you know, 15, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, I forget the exact time now, but he, he saw the writing on the wall. He looked and he said, um, just like the... I see, I can't quote it. Mene, mene, whatever, the writing on the wall with um, Nebuchadnezzar's son. Uh, he saw the writing on the wall in Venezuela. He thought, you know, the days of this kingdom are numbered. And so what he actually did at that time of Venezuela is he sold all of his real estate in Venezuela. And then he just um, moved to renting and he rented his house and he moved his money abroad, put it in foreign banks outside of Venezuela. And then as the crisis started to worsen a number of years ago, he went ahead and left. But he saved his family's fortune because he had sold his real estate and turned his real estate into cash and was renting. And he saved his family fortune by putting it abroad. And that, that way they were able to pick up, go to another country and set up another life again. And so um, I've heard stories like that. And I've often wondered, would I be, would I be the person who is sure enough in, in the future and sure enough and, and positive enough about the impending collapse and the impending problems that I would uh, – I would – go ahead and take those actions. I'm not sure because that, that kind of thing requires courage. And I've often wondered, do I have enough courage to, to take those actions, to be confident enough in what I see with my own eyes? And I hope I would, but I'm not sure. And so I share these ideas with you because you probably, like me, you think about this stuff uh, and you think, well, what would I need to do? And if you listen to what Jimmy says, when I ask him, what would you need to prepare? prepare there are some simple steps um, that you can take. There are some simple actions. For example, you can have a workshop with tools. Uh, that workshop with tools can be useful now and valuable now. It doesn't cost all that much money. You can buy tools secondhand or you can go and buy them new. And at most, we're talking for a fully equipped workshop. We're talking, I mean, a few thousands of dollars. It's well within the range of anybody to have that. And yet having that workshop filled with tools is the difference between having a semi-comfortable life in Venezuela or an uncomfortable life. The ability to do things for yourself, the ability to fix your property, the ability to provide um, the things that you need. Having those gardening tools is very simple. You and I could go out to a Home Depot or other place like that and we could have uh, half a dozen shovels and, and you know all of the and hoes and rakes and all of the things that make gardening doable. And yet those tools are extremely valuable right now in Venezuela because those tools are very hard to get and very expensive. There's plenty of labor. There are some seeds. Um, seeds are in short supply as well. So you can buy seeds and, and set them aside and store them to some degree. Uh, that's hard to store seeds for the very long term, but it's possible. But those tools are extremely valuable. And that's the kind of thing that I've always thought was just ridiculous. You know, James Wesley Rawls is, is big in his 
kind of flair of preparedness and he's been on the show several times but he in his flair of preparedness he's all about you know having the uh having the uh the hand tools and being prepared to make do in a in an 1800 style of life and i often look at that and i think come on like it's not going to be the case but it is the case one of the things that's happening in venezuela right now is the electricity is just getting so much less reliable they do still have electricity but it's gone from you know right now and in in it varies depending on what region of the country, but you're at about four hours a day of electricity. So if you're not prepared to live on four hours a day of electricity comfortably, you start to have some significant problems. And it just goes on and on. So the point is that the preparations don't cost that much. Uh, many of us could do something like install a few solar panels on our on our roof, or they don't even have to be on your roof. You could just have some solar panels. Many of us can have a home battery backup system. Uh, and yet that kind of thing is priceless to be able to have some lights on at night when the electricity is off versus making do on something like candles or, or the, the flashlight on your cell phone. It's just the difference between living semi-comfortably versus being very uncomfortable in the middle of a, of a collapse. So um, those, those, those basic preparations that I talk about are very well worth doing. And I think that they are worth doing even if you think I'm going to leave. You know, I have this whole course that I teach on how to survive and thrive during the coming economic crisis. And the basic idea that I have is the basic idea that I have is the best way to avoid an economic crisis is by not being where there is an economic crisis. And so you'll notice that Jimmy said when I asked him what would you do, he said I'd have a couple of passports uh, and I would have the ability to to leave the country. I would have a place in another country. Now, the couple of passports are not actually strictly necessary. You could do it, but the problem that Venezuelans all around the world are facing right now is they literally cannot renew their passport. I've, I've spoken to so many Venezuelans who they still have their passport, but the Venezuelan consulates and embassies all around the world have, have closed, or if they are still open, they're providing minimal services and they don't physically have the ability to print passports. The passport paper is not available. And so the Venezuelan government is basically not printing passports. It's my understanding that if you're willing to pay a huge amount of money and you're in Venezuela, you can get one through a back channel. But, but I mean, it's, it's, it's huge amounts of money. So it would have been far cheaper years ago to make sure that you just kept your passport up to date. I think about that with my American passport. You know, an American passport has a, uh, an exigency, a, a validity period of 10 years where it's valid for 10 years, but I don't want to get to the point where I have a passport that's nine years old. I gripe and complain about going and paying the, you know, almost $200 to have the thing renewed or hundred and for like 130 or 40, I guess. I gripe and complain about that, but I don't want to be in a situation where I don't have many years of validity left on my passport. And all of a sudden something weird happens and the U S government can't get passport paper, obviously far less likely than the Venezuelan government. But still, I, I think about that. Uh, and so, um, but, but most of the Venezuelans I've met, thankfully, many of them have multiple passports from multiple countries. So they have the Venezuelan passport, but they're traveling on their Spanish passport or they're traveling on their Canadian passport or their American passport or, or some variation of, uh, of a different passport. And those things matter. And so if you have some money offshore, uh, if you have another passport, if you have a place you can go and you can live, and more importantly, you can go and work legally so that you don't have to just live on your savings, you have the ability to live well. And, uh, and if you talk to people, Venezuelans all around the world, they'll, they'll tell you the same thing. Um, but there are a lot of reasons why you might not want to leave. One of the things that I often really bothers me about the idea of leaving is simply the people that you're leaving. 
um, Jimmy is a missionary and he's working primarily through a lot of different Venezuelan uh, pastors and, and at a number of different churches. There's one primary church that's the basic center of distribution. And one of the things that, um, that I think a lot about is the importance of those people who are staying. You know, many of the pastors there could leave, but they don't. And this is something that's always bothered me about the plan of leaving. Uh, when Jesus is talking about uh, in the Gospels, he says that it's the hireling, the hired hand, who runs away during a time of trouble. And I think that that's the, the basic realization that so many um, so many Christians have, especially Christian pastors, as they look around and like, how can I leave? Yes, I may be able to go and save myself, but that's because I have money. That's because I have time. That's because I have resources. But these people, my brothers and sisters, and then our neighbors, these are the people that, that need me. And so, you know, when Jesus said, love your neighbors, that doesn't just mean love your neighbors when times are easy. That means love your neighbors when times are, are hard. So whether it's an economic collapse or uh, a flu pandemic or whatever, your neighbors need you at that time more than they ever do when times are good. And one of the things that you often will see in difficult times is there can often be a religious uh, revival, a, a new birth um, during uh, during times of difficulty. Because when people are rich, when everything is easy, it's very easy to forget about God. Um, you can see that just by looking around you, look at the rich nations of the world, and you usually see that they don't really have, they don't care much for, for religion, they don't care much for God. Um, and it's just easy to say, well, I can provide for all the needs of myself. And so why do I need this God person that you speak of? Um, it's when people are facing times of difficulty, whether it's in a personal life, uh, the death of a loved one, uh, a very difficult situation, a moral crisis, or societal times where there is an economic crisis or, or a collapse in the community uh, that people start to think about religion. They start to think about where is God in this? And that's a time that it can be a time of very fruitful harvest. Um, the major church that Jimmy is working in in Venezuela is thriving right now. It's absolutely thriving, and it's not because the church it's it's not because the church has some kinds of you know tons of money that they can give away. Yes, they're they're doing a lot of things through the church, but it's thriving because in a time of great spiritual darkness, that's a time for the light to shine forth. And so, uh, even if you had a plan to leave. This is one of the things that's always bothered me about prime, focusing primarily on the, the value of leaving. Even if you have the ability to leave, that doesn't mean you should leave. That's when people are going to need you more than anything. And so there's a value in both of those things. There's value in being prepared to leave. And then there's value in being prepared to stay. And that's why I try to do both of those. Is that I want to be able to leave if the circumstance is genuinely best served by leaving. There are lots of individual crises that would result in my needing to leave a place uh, that didn't result, that didn't mean I'm betraying or abandoning people that I care about and those that I'm called to serve and to love um, and to help. Uh, there are many, there are many ways to, um, you know, many, many things that could happen that would, that would be, where it'd be best just simply for me to leave. And so I should be prepared to leave. But on the other hand, um, I need to be prepared to stay as well uh, because I'm not going to abandon the people that, that, that need me when in the middle of a crisis, um, there's a, a passage in scripture that has always haunted me, that, that it haunted me in a good way, that, meaning I just think, I think about it a lot. And it's from the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 28. And God is telling the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, he's prophesying. And basically, God is sending them into bondage. As a result of Israel's sin, um, God is, is sending them into bondage, um, very specifically. 
And um, he's saying, my, my judgment on you for your sin is that you are going into bondage. But here's what I want you to do. He says, go, build houses, have children, build houses, settle down. Um, and then he says, um, uh, then he says to the people of Israel, he says, <sighs> trying to quote scripture while driving, while recording a podcast is uh, sometimes challenging. He says, uh, seek the good of the city. I think it's Jeremiah 28, something like, um, uh, like verse 14 or 16, somewhere in the middle of the chapter. He says, seek the welfare of the city. So don't go into bondage with a bad attitude. You know, don't go in and just bristle at the fact that you're in bondage. He says, I'm judging you and I'm sending you into bondage. You're going to go and be slaves. But um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build houses, plant gardens, have children, and I want you to seek the good of the city. He didn't say run away. He didn't say run away where you can you know, live more freely. He said, I want you to seek the good of the city. And then later, uh, the next the next chapter is where one of the more famous verses of scripture comes from. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you hope in a future. Um, not to, not, you know, I, I can't quote the verse, but you know the verse, you know, plans to give you hope in a future. The, 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 <laughs> it's the, the favorite verse of 33% of, of graduating high school seniors at a, a uh, <laughs> in a Christian school when they're asked to say what their favorite verse is. <laughs> uh, it's the verse that everyone loves to claim for themselves um, without wanting to go through all of the judgment that that uh, has just been said in the previous chapters. Uh, we all want to claim the, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, but we don't want to claim God's judgment. Uh, so it's just that that verse always sticks with me is that you you often don't see a, a, a sense in scripture that that it's God's plan to say, well, go save yourselves, you know, run away where it's easy, go where you can be free and build this for yourself. You see uh, an attitude of submission, submit to the, submit to the judgment. And, um, and yet, seek the good of the city. Seek the welfare of the city in the midst of it. And that's something that I, I've often thought a lot about. Would I really, uh, would I really, let's say I were Venezuelan. Would I really leave Venezuela? Or would I stay? And would I seek to want to be prepared to love my neighbor? Um, to help my neighbor? To serve my neighbor? Would I want to be prepared to stay and to serve in the middle of my community that is in, in great need? Um, to help to see law and order restored in a in a a, a lawless um, environment, and would I um, would I and would I be willing to seek the good of the city? Because there's a time for the light to shine out, and God's not you know concerned with uh, you know my pleasure and my comfort in life. God's concerned with His kingdom, and if everyone who you know runs away in the middle of trials, then you wonder, is this really what it means to, to build the kingdom? So rather, of course, personal musings and, and just some thoughts. But as you think about what Jimmy had to say about Venezuela, just consider yourself. Consider the situation that you're in and consider what you can do to be uh, prepared if you face an economic crisis. Uh, I think that it's very real and very genuine. And uh, it's one of many reasons why you know, there's value in pursuing um, stability in your own life and pursuing financial independence. Um, you have the ability to help. You know, Jimmy is going into Venezuela as a missionary, and um, you've helped send him. Um, you've not paid for any of his money. All the money that I've collected here on Radical Personal Finance just simply turned we turned into just um, stuff. 
Uh, and we've, we're feeding thousands of people in Venezuela right now with the projects that have been established there. Thousands of people. And it's opening up tremendous doors for the gospel. Uh, right now, we've just had a new invitation. Um, years ago, um, years ago, all of the, the, the prisons in, the prisons in, in Venezuela, uh, ejected all, uh, religious work out of the prisons and they closed down all the churches. Well, now, um, I have to check with Jimmy before I talk about this stuff because some of the stuff seems to say private, but private. But uh, if you're hearing this, then you know it's okay to to, to say it. But um, right now, uh, what's happening is that the the prisons are in, are in such need that um, the agricultural project that you got off the ground uh, is actually uh, a project that is producing enough that it's being used to feed the guards and the prisoners. And the condition of of the food, of helping and, and teaching them and planting gardens and going in and, and, and setting up gardens so they can feed themselves, is that we can reinitiate um, the religious work, the Christian churches and, and other work inside of the prisons. And so that's a, just a tremendous opportunity because if you think it's bad to be a prisoner, and it is uh, in your country, try being a prisoner where you're a prisoner inside of a collapsed society. And just think about what those men and women need in the middle of that uh, of that chaos. Uh, try being a prison guard in the middle of a collapsed society, and think about what those men and women need. So there are opportunities all the t- all over the place, and that's what is to me so meaningful about the Christian faith is that um, when times are good, there are opportunities to serve, but when times are bad, there are far more opportunities for, to serve. So, um, I guess in closing, I would simply say, take the lessons to heart. Don't be caught unprepared. Be prepared to stay and to thrive if you're going to stay and be prepared to thrive if you uh, need to flee. Um, Venezuela has changed me. Uh, If you were to go back, you know, 10 years and say, Joshua, or even five years, five years, if you were to go back five years and you were to say, Joshua, I want you to talk about preparedness. I would have been, I would have said, well, I'll talk about it, but I'm going to be fairly conservative in my recommendations. I'm going to sound a lot like, uh, you know, FEMA and talk to you about the basic stuff. But these days after seeing Venezuela, I'm, it's caused me to become much more hardcore myself, um, much more, much more prepared and to be willing and desirous to talk to others about the value of being prepared, even to a high level. You know, just last night I recorded a a class for my um, practical family preparedness course and we were talking about food and I I talked through how to do food storage and food preparation Um, and I discussed, you know, different amounts and I talked about, you know, having a month's worth of food to be able to feed your family for a month. Then I talked about having, you know, three to six months worth of food. Then I talked about having one to three years worth of food saved. And I was talking about why to, the reasons to have one to three years worth of food saved, if you have the ability. Now, I don't think everybody needs to. It's actually very difficult to come up with the, the disaster in which you need, uh, you know, three years of food or even one year of food. There are a couple of them that do exist, but it's difficult to come up with them. If you think about when I asked Jimmy, I said, you know, would you have food saved? He said, yeah, yeah, it's useful, it's valuable, and I know that he thinks it's a good idea. But still, um, you can grow food, at least in Venezuela you can grow food. And food is not, doesn't, it's not that it, does, that, that it doesn't exist, it does exist, it's just scarce and very expensive. But you can grow food if you have the tools. Uh, and so there are other preparations that are make a, make a bigger difference to him. But one of the biggest reasons to have food saved and to have lots of food saved is, you know, one year of food saved for a family of four 
is three months of food saved for four families of four. Um, three years worth of food saved for one year, one family of four is six months worth of food saved for a community. And that's one of the most important reasons to, to have food is so that you can, in the middle of a crisis, you can be in a place of strength to help the community around. Um, are you going to need six shovels uh, to plant your own garden? Probably not. You probably need two. But if you have six shovels set aside, you can plant your garden. You can give one to your neighbors to plant their gardens, and you can all come together on the church property and or the, the town square, and you can plant a community garden. And the people who are prepared to stand up in the middle of a disaster and a chaos are the people who have the opportunity to have influence, who are the people to have the opportunity to build and to help and to serve. They're the ones that have the opportunity to rebuild society. And so we need to be thinking about... Um, we need to be thinking about not just ourselves, making sure that, you know, my little tiny family is great and you, know, you come and you ask us if we have food, we're going to shoot you, which is ridiculous. You need to be thinking about how can I provide for my community? How can I provide for my family, my extended family, my neighbors and my community? Um, because, you know, my ambition is to be part of a community that I would never want to leave. Um, that's the, that's the key. That's in my opinion is, is, is the goal is to have, if you don't like the place that you live, if you wouldn't be committed to, to loving and serving and, and, and helping in your community, then you probably should leave until you go find a community that you would. Um, which is one of the things that bothers me so much about the, the whole world of preparedness where it's like people somehow want to be on their own and they want to talk about, well, it's just me and we're, we're going to make it through and we're going to survive. Now, what about, what about the community of everybody in the community? So, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, I hope that these thoughts are useful and that they serve you. But there's real value in being prepared. Um, if I see you, it's you know, next time I do a radical personal event, I'm going to bring a couple of handfuls of Venezuelan money and, and just like start handing it out. And I've got the stuff from Zimbabwe. I've got Venezuela. I've got a bunch of hyperinflated currencies in a collection stuck somewhere. But the Venezuelan one is just, it's, it's very real. Um, and if I can figure out a way to, to make it happen, I, I still would like to figure out uh, more that the radical personal finance community uh, can do. It's just, it's hard because there are serious safety concerns. Um, there are serious legal concerns. Uh, you know, about the closest that I could do um, an event that, that where it could be a public event would be to do something, some form of refu refugee relief project uh, in Colombia uh, or possibly Brazil, um, you know, on the border because so much of the listening audience from this show is is American. Americans can't get into Venezuela right Venezuela right now, um, and so it's just it's very difficult. But if I could figure out a way to do it where I think it would be helpful, then I'd like to do it. But there will be plenty of opportunities in, in the future uh, to help and serve. It's just it's it's such a crisis right now. It's hard to figure out the best way to do it. Uh, if you're interested in helping in Venezuela, the the best thing to do is to give money. Uh, and uh, I need to talk to Jimmy about uh, about doing more, uh, but. The best thing to do is to give money. You know, just comment on, on charity. I am I'm extremely skeptical of many, many charitable projects. Charity is very hard to get right. And I'm deeply skeptical of a lot of charity. But I'll tell you one thing that, while I retain my skepticism, I'll tell you one thing that, that has, um, where I've changed my tune on. I used to be very uncomfortable giving money to people, whether it's the bum on the street or to a friend that was in need. 
I used to be very uncomfortable giving money because I often didn't think that that person would be able to use the money as well as I could. And so I would say, oh, well, so-and-so is struggling. And so what I'll do is I'll buy them groceries. And because I'm a good, you know, I'm, I'm good at getting a good deal on groceries and I'll, I'll go and, and, um, and get them groceries instead. Uh, I've changed on that. Not that there's not a place for that, right? You don't want to enable somebody who is in a bad situation. If somebody says they're hungry and you know that if you give them money, they're going to go and use it to buy drugs um, or alcohol instead of food and they're genuinely hungry, I think you're better served to give them food. But even with the bum on the street, I've talked to a lot of bums on the street. And one of the things that you find is that if the person's not addicted to drugs, often money is what they need. It's not food. They have enough food or they're not, they're, yeah, they're hungry, but food is not the key thing. It's money. They need to get out, be able to get, solve the problem, a bus ticket home or something like that. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't work when there's drug addiction, um, which is just much more difficult. But a lot of times money is what's needed. And in charitable work as well, money is actually the most important thing to give money because a lot of times there are resources available. A lot of times there are resources available um, in the local area, in the local market, if you just give money. And one of the major problems with charity, let's say that, let's say that you say, well, there's starving people in Africa. Uh, and you look around a country like the United States and you say, well, you got all this food. Well, let's get some food. Let's, let's take some food over to the starving people in Africa. That can be one of the most destructive things possible because here's, what, here, here's the way that actually works out. Um, if you have, let's say that you have... Uh, uh, pick a country. I don't know. Right now there's a famine in, in Africa, kind of these locust plagues. Let's say it's Kenya, right? And so in Kenya, there are farmers and those farmers are being devastated by the locusts and by the droughts that are, that are happening right there in Kenya. But those farmers are making their living by growing food, which they're selling in the local area. Now, a Kenyan farm is very different than an American farm. They look very different, but those farmers are growing food and they're selling that food to their neighbors and they're providing food for their neighbors and they're making a profit in that process to, to provide for them. So that's, that's the way that the economy works. Now, what happens in the United States? Well, what happens in the United States is all of the food in the United States is subsidized. And so the farmers get paid, um, far more for the, the, the food is, is available at far lower prices because your tax dollar subsidized the farmers. And they subsidize them directly through direct subsidies. Subsidies. They subsidize them through market support, through loans, through cheap money. They subsidize them through the Federal Reserve with cheap, cheap debt that's available everywhere. And so an American farm looks very different than a looks very different than a Kenyan farm does. An American farm has a team of 20 combines that come in at harvest time and harvest thousands of acres within a couple of days. The American farmer is using huge mechanical stuff and he's got wheat that's available at tiny, tiny prices. Hang on a second. So this is, this is the American farm. So what, is, let, what do you do if, let's say you're going to give wheat 
to uh, starving people in Kenya. And so you go and you say, look, I can buy this wheat in the United States at a dollar a bushel, and we, that's so much cheaper than what we can buy wheat for in Kenya. And so what you do is you buy the wheat for a dollar a bushel in the United States, and then you ship it into Kenya. Um, and you, you drop it, right? So you drop these huge bags of wheat. So now everybody in Kenya has wheat. Great. This is so wonderful because now the people that were hungry are no longer hungry. Yeah, but here's the problem. What you've done in the process is you've not only just given away um, the food to the people who were hungry, which has tremendous moral hazard because now you're giving people food without having them work. And if a man doesn't work, he should not eat. There's a reason why if a man doesn't work, he should not eat. You'll destroy his character if he becomes lazy and he just and he just becomes comes to... to um, to look at the food and you don't have any way as a it just gets the food for without any effort and you as an american you don't have any way to know in the local area is this somebody who is starving because they are they you know they just genuinely don't have any opportunity or is this somebody who's starving because they have no um no work ethic they're not willing to actually do anything this is why government programs welfare programs are such a disaster because a government has to try to be fair and so they don't have the ability to go into a local community and say we're going to discriminate against you because you're just lazy um, um, but we see that you're really in need because you have this other thing and you're not lazy. You've just had a, a stroke of misfortune. You can do that with your neighbors. You can know which of your neighbors is is in need because they're lazy and which of your neighbors is in need because of a, of a stroke of misfortune. But the government can't do that. So the same problem exists from the charity perspective. But what you also do is you wind up destroying the market. And so that farmer may have had 20% of his crop left. And if the prices in the market had been allowed to adjust from, uh, say, $3 a bushel to $10 a bushel, he would have made enough money selling his wheat at $10 a bushel to be able to have enough income to keep himself going if he were in the situation where he could actually sell it at $10 a bushel. But when you, with your charity, come in and you airdrop thousands of bushels of wheat, you know, just plummet it down and parachutes from an airplane, you destroy the market. And so he can't now, not, now, not only can he not sell his wheat at $10 a bushel, he can't sell his wheat at $3 a bushel. And so all his wheat goes bad or he eats it up himself and he can't even sell it because the free wheat is better. And so it destroys the farmer. Well, you do this year after year. And what incentive is there for the farmer to keep on, uh, farmer to keep on growing wheat? There's none. And so you put the farmer out of business. Um, you put the farmer out of business and, um, uh, and, uh, you put the farmer out of business. He sells his land. Um, and now all of, you know, a few years later, something changes and, uh, uh, something changes and, and the farmer's not in business. And so now the famines get worse because now there's no farmers and the, the collected knowledge of how to grow wheat in Kenya and wheat is just a, a metaphor here, but the, the Kenya would be corn, of course, but the, the knowledge of how to grow a, a crop in that context is lost. And so the famine gets worse and worse because of the distorted view. Now, what if instead of giving wheat in that situation, you had given money? Well, you would give money and then that money would go and the money would be used to buy wheat in the local markets. Maybe there's not enough wheat in that town, but regardless, it goes to the local markets. And so, yes, you might be paying three or five times as much for the wheat in the local market, but now that wheat, that money is going into the pocket of the local farmer, which is stimulating the local economy. And so an infusion of money into a local economy is often one of the least damaging damaging things because the farmer takes it for in payment for the wheat then he goes and he spends it in payments for something else even if that something else is just simply he builds a bigger house for himself well now the money is going from that from the house into the, the pockets of the vendors who are selling the construction materials and the money is going into the pockets of the workmen who are working on the house and so you say well what, what we did is we made the farmer rich 
yeah, you made the farmer rich, but it was far more helpful to the local community because the farmer's still in business. He has enough money set aside where he can still be in business for the next few years. And even if he just used it to line his pocket by selling wheat at very high prices, now he has the ability to actually provide for um, to, all that money is still in the local community. So in that context, the least damaging thing you could do was to give money. This is, by the way, exactly the same reason why, you know, years ago, I recorded a show on the importance of price gouging. Um, price gouging, which there are laws all around the United States and all around the world, was so supposedly this is a bad thing. Price gouging is one of the most valuable things because it serves as a restraint on the market. Um, people will use less of something when it costs money. And then it goes to the, the increased prices go to reward those people who are taking the risk of serving the market. And even if it rewards the merchants um, who are selling things at a higher value, um, that's fine because they still have the money and now that they can, they'll, they'll use that, they'll save it, they'll invest it, they'll, they'll buy other things. Or let's say that a merchant raises his private prices massively right before a disaster. Well, the disaster comes through, but now the merchant has a little bit of extra profit that they can use to put their store back together and put their roof back on so they can be back in business quickly. If you say to the merchant who's selling plywood, no, you can't sell your plywood for $40 a sheet because that's what the market will demand. You've got to sell it at $8 a sheet because that was the previous price, then now that the merchant's roof gets blown off, what does the merchant do? He's got no money. You took all his plywood that would have been valuable um, and he's got no money. And so all he can do is either hoard the plywood, which means you hold it back and he can use that to at least put a roof on with his own plywood, or he sells it at sub-market prices. And now he's out of money. And so now what does he do after the disaster? The hurricane comes through. All he's got to go do is, is apply for some FEMA loan uh, and, and go and, and have some government loan and, and, and the whole market is messed up. And so this is why price gouging laws are, are wrong. They're immoral. They should not be done. And all they are, all they do is they destroy the local market. So charity um, is often destructive and it's destructive in short-term projects. Um, you say, I'm going to get my, my group of, you know, we're going to go in my mission group and we're going to go and we're going to build houses. Don't build it. Mean, the, the people that profit from that are the people who go on the mission group, mission trip. Um, because they ex exposes them to something different. But frankly, you're probably better off if you just sent the money that you would spend on, on plane tickets and then let the person, let somebody local buy it with the local market. Because now instead of you coming in and where your work, your work is worth $40 an hour, but you're going to go and do some noble service project to go for a week and, and, um, uh, you know, some noble service project and, and uh, go and build a house for somebody, just send the $400, send the, make more money and send the money to the person who needs it and let them buy it locally. And then instead of just enriching one family with the, the new house, uh, which can be great, of course, now you're enriching the whole community because not only is it the family that has the house, but it's also the workmen who built the house and the, the suppliers who sell the supplies. So I'm, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the problems with charity. I'm, I'm deeply skeptical of most charitable work. Um, and, and money is really the best thing. So I guess right now, like I wasn't going to do a fundraising drive, but if you want to give money to Venezuela, um, number one is probably you should wait until I design something. Um, if, until I design a specific drive of a specific thing that we're looking to fund, um, because I didn't, start recording this as a fundraising drive. But if you feel the burden, you feel the desire to give money, send me an email, joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. I'll tell you how to get money to me. I will take it and transmit it to um, all of it to Venezuela. 
And, and I think it's, I, I don't think it's destructive there right now. Genuinely, what we do with the money is we take the money, we take it into Venezuela. If there's something that's not available in Venezuela, we buy it outside the country, as close to the country as possible, and get it into the country. And then we take the, the money and we put it to use inside the country. Um, and there are a number of different things that are doing. We've sent food into Venezuela. We've sent seeds into Venezuela. We've built all kinds of things. We've sent electrical equipment into Venezuela. Um, we've bought vehicles and gotten vehicles in there. And all of these things are, are basically force multipliers to help, um, to help uh, expand um, the operations. Uh, and it's having a tremendous effect. Um, it's not an exaggeration at this point to say uh, tens of thousands... I'm nervous saying tens, um, thousands and thousands of people are, are being helped, are being fed and are being, uh, encouraged, uh, through some of the projects that we're involved in. And, uh, and your money is what got those off the ground. So if you feel desire to give, um, then, uh, reach out to me, send me an email, Joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. I'll tell you how to do that. Um, you can give money directly with no tax receipts. Um, which by the way, is one of the, uh, that's another thing. And at some point I'll do a whole series on charity, but, I'm, I have very little use for, you know, tax exempt organizations, tax receipts, et cetera. Even right now, um, it's just a nightmare in Venezuela trying to do things through tax exempt organizations. If you need an organization, either a U.S. or a Canadian organization to funnel the money through, um, let me know if you want a tax deduction. I understand that, that obviously tax deductions are very valuable in financial planner, but what happens is um, first, you would lose money to administrative expenses, which is fine. Um, administration is necessary and important. But what happens that's even even more difficult is it, it creates huge amounts of huge burdens of bookkeeping and accounting. And that's one of the things that's been so difficult in uh, in Venezuela. There are significant rules on humanitarian organizations about the kind of accounting that they have to do for their money. Nobody, no government wants to see their tax-exempt organizations abused uh, of just simply cash going out the door and being used as some form of money laundering, right? Would it be the world's greatest... Uh, world's greatest uh, money laundering scheme. We're going to start a tax-exempt organization in the United States of America. All the money that's given to that tax-exempt organization gets a deduction for income taxes. The organization is exempt from the payment of taxes. And oh, by the way, the organization carries suitcases full of cash um, to random third-world countries and hands out suitcases full of cash. Um, it, like, obviously, that is a government, um, a government agent's nightmare. Uh, because you can't account for that cash. And so there are all kinds of rules for these kinds of organizations about how they have to account for the cash. And so you go into a situation like Venezuela, it's just not possible to account for the cash. Uh, it's, it's not possible because if you try to, you know, nobody has receipts. Accounting doesn't exist in the country anymore. And I tried to get Jimmy to talk about that a little bit, but, but it's hard to get him to do it on the microphone. But accounting just does not exist anymore. You go into Venezuela right now and you explain to them, um, well, let's talk about your double entry accounting system. Accounting? What, what are you talking about? Um, it's not possible to do accounting in a world where, um, the money is, is inflating at a million percent per year. It's not possible to do accounting where you, you are issued a new currency every few months. You want to get rid of the currency as quickly as you can. And it's not possible to do accounting, accurate accounting in a currency where you are, um, where you're, you're dealing with bundles of money. And I'm not exaggerating to say, if you take, you, you cannot change any, I mean, you can barely change a $20 bill, a US dollar bill in Venezuela. So you go and you exchange a $10 bill 
you're going to receive a stack of banknotes that is filling a backpack, a small backpack. And the banknotes are not dealt with in single digits. Rather, they're wrapped together with, with, with tape in one-inch bundles and sorted according to color. And so you say, oh, here, these are the orange ones, and they're wrapped together in one-inch bundles. That's how bad the inflation is. How do you do accounting in a currency like that? You say, well, we should do accounting in some kind of foreign currency. Well, how do you do that? How do you do accounting in U.S. dollars in a hyperinflated, um, in a hyperinflated currency when you've got the official <coughs> government exchange rate, which is rigged and entirely, um, entirely inaccurate compared to what's actually on the ground um, versus or the black market rate, which is just changing at hundreds of percent per year? It's, it's not possible. It is not at all possible to do accounting in any kind of foreign currency. So then you say, well, then we'll just, we'll just do all of our transactions in foreign currency. We'll use Colombian pesos and we'll, we'll have our economy based on that. Yeah, but the problem is that there's not enough supply. So you can't actually run your life on Colombian pesos because there aren't enough Colombian pesos in circulation for you to do it. And they're too precious. So if you, you can't count on how do you, how do you do an accounting system when you're, you're saving money in, Colo- in Colombian pesos and maybe U.S. dollars, but there are all kinds of currency exchange um, laws that you, can't, uh, that you can't do, and then your customers can't pay you in Colombian pesos because they don't have them because they're poor. And so they're paying you in a barter transaction here. I mean, I'll give you um, a basket of eggs in exchange for some rice and vice versa and, and simple barter transactions. They're bartering in terms of labor. Um, you've got different currencies. You get, it, it, there's no way to do accounting. And so there's no, there aren't any accountants. There's no science of accounting. There's no field of accounting. It's all completely broken. And then there's no such thing as a receipt because if you ask for a receipt, people assume, they look at you and assume that you're a government agent, that you're a spy of some kind. And so if you want to get killed, just to go around and ask everybody for a receipt. And so it's, it's almost impossible to do. And so it imposes these onerous regulations, these onerous uh, burdens on on Jimmy, who is doing work there to try to funnel money through because they got to have, if a donor is going to give, um, you know, a thousand dollars, it's got to be, it's got to have a receipt because the, the tax exempt organization, the, re- the relief aid, aid organization can't run the risk of, of, um, uh, getting in a situation where they get in trouble with the government. That would, that would destroy the whole thing. So it's just a nightmare. Uh, and so it's far easier to just simply give money. So what I've done when I've given money is I just give cash. Um, and I know the people involved, I trust the people involved and I trust their judgment. Here's the other thing. You can't write down half the stuff that, that is done with the cash because it's not legal. Um, but it's moral, right? The law is, makes it, says it's illegal to do what's being done, but it's the morally right thing to do. Um, because the laws are so backwards that sometimes the thing that's morally right to do is not legal. Um, and then how do you account for bribes? How do you account for all that stuff? Uh, how do you account for that legally and put it down and, and tell the, the, the officer, hey, listen, I know that we're paying you, you know, X number of dollars in order for you to allow this to happen. Um, and we know that, I mean, you get the, you get the, you get the point. Uh, and so it's, you've just got to trust the people on the ground. And that's the problem with most charity is that if you, if you don't know somebody, you've, you just got to trust somebody because in one circumstance, somebody who is experienced will look at it and say, in this situation, what I have to do is I have to pay this soldier to let this certain thing happen. Okay. That's the right thing to do. But in the next situation, the soldier's asking for money and look at the soldier and say, absolutely not. I'm not going to do it. And you need discernment and experience and wisdom um, to make that decision appropriately. You can't, you can't say what, what's right and what's wrong in the, in the moment. Um, so 
you guys got me. I mean, I got myself going. You didn't do anything, obviously. But I guess there's. Uh, that's just what I wanted to share. So, um, I'm not ask, I'm not doing a money drive right now. I would like to in the future, but right now um, I'm not doing a money drive. What I'm just simply saying is, if you would like to give, uh, if this touches your heart, then first look for somebody local. Right? Charity should be done locally. I would much rather you give money to your neighbor who needs it and go and pay somebody's mortgage bill or go and buy food for someone or go and just give cash to somebody who's struggling. That's probably better than giving it to people on the other side of the world. Um, uh, but, uh, but if you do feel a desire to give, then just email me and I'll, I'll, I'll make it happen and we'll get all the money on. I mean, we've raised, I forget the number, but it was, um, something approaching. No, at this point we've raised, um, I have to go and check. My, I'd have to go and check my records, but um, tens of thousands of dollars at this point in time, and we've fed uh, thousands of people. So it's not that I don't. The work is really good. It's a very productive use of of the money. But what I'd like to do is I'd just like to have more of a plan before I do a fundraising drive. So for now, um, go give to your neighbor if you want to give. If you just feel in you know, the Lord's on your heart and you say you want to give, then email me and I'll tell you how to do that. Joshua at personalfinance.com. For now, um, I would say focus on getting prepared yourself. And so I sell two courses. Um, on this topic, you probably need both of them. Um, the first course, the comprehensive course on called how to survive and thrive during the coming economic crisis. Um, you can find that at radicalpersonalfinance.com slash store. Um, to date, it's one of my best courses. I, I think I may have had one refund on it and I've had a lot of students go through it. Um, I've had so many satisfied students and I've had people taking action on what I do in the course. In the course, I will tell you how to survive and thrive during the coming economic crisis, whatever that happens to be, whether it's a personal crisis or whether it's a, an international crisis, whether it's a, uh, an economic crisis caught, brought on by coronavirus or whether it's um, you know hyperinflation due to socialism or whether it's the next crisis that President Trump you know, causes or a president Sanders or whatever, um, doesn't matter the, the, the cause of it. What matters is that you're prepared for it. And so that's the, the best course to start with. If you have your internationalization squared away, which in that course, I talk about practical preparedness. Then I talk about internationalization. If you've got your internationalization squared away, uh, or you've done that course, then come take my radical family preparedness course. You can find, sign up for that one at radicalpreparedness.com. Um, actively teaching it right now, uh, module by module. Uh, and it's a live, it's being taught in a live format. So you can ask questions on anything you want. So go to radicalpreparedness.com if you want that one. It's not available in the store at radicalpersonalfinance.com yet. Uh, thank you for listening. Again, radicalpersonalfinance.com slash store and radicalpreparedness.com.